Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm grateful to have you on, taking time out of your busy day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to, subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Coming up on this edition of the program, we're going to take a trip back to the year of 1973. Why 1973, you may ask? Well, it's... 50 years ago which is a nice round number marking a half a century and more specifically it's my birth year i made 50 years old on march the 5th this past sunday and to celebrate my 50th year on this planet i would like to take it take you back to the year of 1973 and all of the special things in sports that took place in our main event segment of the program, we're going to go through the sports calendar year 50 years ago to see what was going on and some of the great names and performances that made that year so memorable. Later in the show, we'll have our home field apparel top five, counting down the five great performances from 1973, which includes a college basketball center having a near-perfect performance in a national championship game, a heavyweight champ being destroyed in the ring by someone who is a household name today and has nothing to do with boxing. A tennis match they made a movie out of and a horse that captivated the entire country for a month and a half and ran the absolute perfect race. And to wrap up the show, we're going to send a shout out to the exact date of my birth, Monday, March 5th, 1973, and the sports headlines of that day. And to my astonishment, not too much was going on. To say it was a light night in sports would have been an understatement, or maybe an overstatement. So sit back and pump up the volume because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com 
slash sports history books. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and thank you for joining us wherever you may be. And just to remind everyone out there, don't forget to subscribe to the show. It would help me and the network, the Sports History Network, if you did. When you subscribe, you will be getting new exciting episodes in sports history whenever they become available. In the main event, we will talk about the year in sports in 1973. As I alluded to earlier, I just turned 50 years old. Man, that feels and sounds really weird. So in this episode, we will talk about the year of 1973 and what events set this year apart from all the others and made that year so special. After a raucous New Year's Eve celebration, people settle in for football on New Year's Day. More specifically, college football. And this year was no different. Headlighting the college football bowl season that year was the matchup in the Rose Bowl between USC and Ohio State. This would be the first of three matchups between the schools in Pasadena during the decade of the 1970s. And as it turned out, the Trojans behind running back Sam Cunningham ran past the Buckeyes 42-17 to give the Trojans their seventh national championship and coach John McKay his third. In the other major bowl games, the Oklahoma Sooners shut out Penn State 14-0 in the Sugar Bowl at Tulane Stadium, which that game was played actually on New Year's Eve. In the Cotton Bowl, Texas, led by coach Darrell K. Royal, defeated Bear Bryant in Alabama 17-13. And finally, in the Orange Bowl, Heisman Trophy winner Johnny Rogers had an unforgettable night as his Nebraska Cornhuskers dismantled Tom Clements and Notre Dame 40-6. Rogers, showing that he was indeed the best player in college football that year, ran for three touchdowns, caught a touchdown pass, and threw a 52-yard touchdown pass to Frosty Anderson in the second quarter. Now, on January, Sunday, January the 14th was the seventh edition of Super Sunday. At the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, the undefeated Miami Dolphins faced the favored Washington Redskins in Super Bowl VII. The Dolphins avenged their Super Bowl loss from the previous year, beating Washington 14-7, as Jake Scott, with two interceptions in the game, was named the game's most valuable player. The Dolphins finished the season with a perfect 17-0 record and remain the only NFL team to finish the year unbeaten. Here's a side note that not a lot of people talk about when they talk about the 72 Dolphins. Not only they are the first team to go through a season unbeaten, they are the first team in NFL history to play an entire regular season, which back then was only 14 games, without facing a team that made the playoffs. Now to finish out the month of January was a pair of league all-star games. At Chicago Stadium, known as the Madhouse on Madison, the, was the NBA all-star game. Celtics star Dave Cowens was named the most valuable player as the Eastern Conference defeated the Western Conference 104-84. The following weekend was the NHL's All-Star Game where, the, where its brightest stars convened at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Greg Polis of the Pittsburgh Penguins, Penguins led the Eastern Conference past the West 5-4. Now the night before the NHL All-Star Game, the focus of the sports world was set in Kingston, Jamaica. 
as the heavyweight champion Joe Frazier took on number one contender and former heavyweight gold medalist George Foreman at what was billed as the Sunshine Showdown. Not only was it the biggest fight of the year, but it was also historic for television. The company Home Box Office, known by its acronym HBO, was broadcasting his first boxing match ever. Frazier, who had defeated Muhammad Ali two years earlier, was looking to maintain the title against the power-punching foreman. The fight, well, wasn't much of one, destroyed Frazier in less than two rounds. The champ had been knocked on the canvas a total of six times in the first two rounds. The fight was stopped late in the second round by referee Arthur McCanny as Angelo Dundee was screaming to stop the fight and Howard Cosell was beside himself as Foreman showed his dominance and claimed the heavyweight title. A little over a month later, another landmark heavyweight boxing match took place in San Diego as Muhammad Ali working, working his way back to gain the title took on little known and former Marine Ken Norton. On March the 31st, Norton, with an unorthodox boxing style that included jabbing from below and crossing his hands for defense, outmaneuvered Ali and won in a split decision, igniting a controversy in the boxing world. Soon after the fight, it was discovered that Ali had suffered a broken jaw that he sustained in the second round. On September the 10th, 1973, was the much-anticipated rematch between Ali and Norton taking place at the Forum in Inglewood, California. Both fighters went toe-to-toe -to -toe for the full 15 rounds. However, when it was over, Ali had avenged his loss to Norton with a split decision, setting up a world title bout with Foreman the next year in Kinshasa Zaire that known simply as the Rumble in the Jungle. Heading into March, the big question was that was on the minds of college basketball fans was, would UCLA dynasty ever end? By the spring of 1973, many sports writers had jokingly dubbed the NCAA basketball tournament the quote, unquote, the UCLA Invitational. Heading into the tournament that year, UCLA was eyeing its seventh consecutive national championship. The Bruins, of course, were led by the Wizard of Westwood head coach John Wooden, and the big redhead himself, Bill Walton, who was in his junior season in the Walton game that featured Keith Wilkes, Larry Farmer, and Sven Nader. The Bruins cruised into the Final Four in St. Louis after beating Arizona State and San Francisco in the tournament. Joining the Bruins in the Final Four was Indiana with second-year head coach Bobby Knight, Providence Friars led by the dynamic duo of Ernie DeGregorio and Marvin Bad News Barnes, with head coach Dave Gavitt. Rounding out the Final Four was surprise entry Memphis State, led by future Memphis State coach Larry Finch and future ABA and NBA All-Star Larry Keenan, who was named the Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year in 1973, and coach Gene Bartow, who would later lead UCLA to the Final Four in 1980. In the national semifinal, the Bruins beat Indiana 70-59, while Memphis State outlasted Providence 87-66, setting up the national championship game between UCLA and Memphis State. In the title game being broadcast by NBC, Kurt Gowdy and Tom Hawkins broadcast the final that some regard as the greatest offensive performance in college basketball history. Walton went 21 of 22 from the field with 44 points and 13 rebounds, as the top-ranked Bruins defeated the Tigers 87-66 for UCLA's seventh consecutive national championship. Now, even though UCLA Bruins had continued their dominance in college basketball, 
The sports story of 1973 evolved over a few weeks in the spring heading into the summer. It wasn't the NBA Finals or the Stanley Cup playoffs, nor was it the opening of the MLB season and in their experiment with the designated hitter. From the first Saturday in May to the second weekend in June, all anyone could talk about was a horse named Secretariat. By the Kentucky Derby, Secretariat was already well known. He had already been named the Horse of the Year in 1972 and was one of the betting favorites heading into the Derby. On May 5th, Secretariat rode by jockey Ron Turcott, trained by Lucian Lorem and owned by Penny Shannery, was, was part of a particularly strong, fast field that, could, that had the potential to set a new race course record. Other horses in that field included Angle Light, who had defeated Secretariat in the Wood Memorial Stakes a couple of weeks earlier. Also in the field was Sham, Our Native, My Gallant, and all of these were betting favorites. As the race began, another horse, Shecky Green, took the lead and led for most of the race. However, on the back stretch and in the final turn, Secretariat turned it on and gained the lead down the stretch, and one going away with a time of 1 minute 59 and 2 fifths seconds. Two and a half lengths past second place finisher Sham. Secretariat won the first leg of the Triple Crown and was heading into the Preakness Stakes in Maryland. On May 19th, six horses entered the field at Pimlico Racecourse in Baltimore. Before a crowd of 62,000 fans, Secretariat won over Sham again by two and a half lengths and a record time of 1 minute and 53 seconds, still an all time race record. After winning at the Preakness Stakes and heading into the third and final race for the Triple Crown, Secretariat was garnering national attention. After all, it was 25 years since the horse had won the Triple Crown, which was citation in 1948. The day, June 9, 1973. It was a warm and overcast afternoon at Belmont Park in Elmont, New York for the 105th Belmont Stakes. Close to 70,000 fans turned out and more than 15 million watched on CBS to see if Secretariat, now America's horse, would be able to claim the Triple Crown and be mentioned in the rarefied air of all the horses that had run the, won the Triple Crown before him. Now what happened instead made him more than just a racehorse. After, winning, after his winning time of 2 minutes and 24 seconds, Breaking the course record by over two and a half seconds, Secretary went from being just a horse to being an American sports legend. His performance at the Belmont was, quite frankly, not a race. He defeated his second place finisher, Trisa Prince, by 31 lengths, the largest margin of victory in Belmont history. On to the NBA Finals. And the matchup to decide the NBA championship in 73 was the rubber match between the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers. This would be the third time in four years the Lakers and Knicks would meet for the NBA title. In 1970, it was Willis Reed and the Knicks winning their first NBA title ever in a dramatic seven-game series at Madison Square Garden. The Lakers would finally win their elusive championship in 1972 beating the Knicks in their second finals matchup in five years. And this year, the Knicks, led by series MVP Willis Reed, defeated the Lakers four games to one in clinching the series on May the 10th in Los Angeles, claiming a 102-93 win. This would be the only NBA championships for Hall of Famers Jerry Lucas and Earl Monroe. Also, Game 5 would be the final game for Hall of Famer Wilt Chamberlain, who scored his final points on an uncontested dunk in the final seconds. 
This was also the final, last NBA Finals broadcast by in, by ABC until 2003. Meanwhile, in the ABA, the Indiana Pacers became the first team to win three ABA championships, beating Artis Gilmore and the Kentucky Colonels four games to three. The Pacers, led by Finals MVP and Hall of Famer George McGinnis, closed out a very physical series on May the 12th, beating the Colonels in a low scoring by ABA standards, 88-81 at Freedom Hall in Louisville. Meanwhile, in hockey, the 1973 Stanley Cup Finals featured a pair of original six teams. The Montreal Canadiens, led by Scotty Bowman, carried with them a 52-10-13 record and took on the Chicago Blackhawks, who came in with a mark of 42-27-9 and were coached by Bill Ray. It was a rematch of the 1971 Stanley Cup Final that saw Montreal win in seven games. Just as it did two years earlier, the Canadians won the series for this time four games to two, with Yvonne Kunoyer named the Conn Smythe Trophy winner as the series' most valuable player. The win gave the Canadians their 18th Stanley Cup title in team history. As winter gave way to spring and eventually to summer, Major League Baseball season began in April, yet in 1973, this season would be different from all of the seasons that came before. This year was the first year of the designated hitter. The American League adopted the rule while the National League didn't. It would mark the first time in MLB history that the two leagues would be governed by two different sets of rules. The DH was simply replacing the pitcher with a stronger hitter play hitting player without removing that player from the game in the interest of more offense. In January of 1973, Orlando Cepeda signed with the Boston Red Sox solely as a designated hitter. Ron Bloomberg of the New York Yankees became the first player to enter the game as a DH as the Yankees faced the Boston Red Sox at Fenway Park on opening day. Entering that season, the Oakland A's were the defending World Series champions. They had defeated the Cincinnati Reds in seven games claiming their first world championship since moving to the Bay Area from Kansas City in the mid-1960s. They finished the year with a 94-68 record and edged the Baltimore Orioles in the American League Championship Series. Over in the National League, the You Gotta Believe New York Mets reached the World Series for the second time in four seasons after knocking off the defending National League champion Cincinnati Reds in a contentious five-game series. The 1973 series is best remembered for what happened off the field as much as what happened on it. More specifically, between A's owner Charlie Finley and Oakland second baseman Mike Andrews. After committing a pair of crucial 12th inning errors in Game 2, they gave the Mets a 10-7 win to even the series at one game apiece. Finley punished Andrews by forcing him forcing him to sign an affidavit saying that he, Andrews, was injured, therefore, thereby sidelining him for the remainder of, remainder of the series. In Game 3 at Shea Stadium, A's manager Dick Williams and all of the A's players wore a piece of athletic tape on their uniforms with the number 17 on it, Andrews' uniform number, in protest of Charlie Finley's actions in the previous game. Prior to Game 4, MLB Commissioner Bui Kuhn ordered Finley to reinstate Andrews to the active roster, citing his illegal actions after Game 2. Andrews entered the game as a pinch hitter in the top of the 8th, 
prompting a standing ovation from the Mets' home crowd at Shea Stadium. Andrews will ground out and will be his final Major League at-bat. The A's behind the play of American League MVP Reggie Jackson defeated the Mets in seven games for their second consecutive World Series win. The A's were going to win a third straight world title the next year, beating the Los Angeles Dodgers. Nolan Ryan of the California Angels tossed a pair of no-hitters in 1973, blanking the Tigers on May the 1st, then doing it again exactly two months later against the Kansas City Royals. A total of five no-hitters were thrown that season. Steve Busby of the Royals no-hit the Tigers on April 27th, Jim Bibby stymied the champion A's on, thir- on, Ju- on July 30th, and Phil Necro of the Braves threw the only no-hitter in the National League, beating the San Diego Padres on August the 5th. Heading into September, the NFL season was just getting underway and the Major League Baseball season was in its stretch run. But an unusual sports and television event took place where they usually play football and baseball. On the night of September 20th, 1973, the Astrodome in Houston was the site of the Tennis Battle of the Sexes. On ABC television, hosted by Howard Cosell, 55-year-old Bobby Riggs, former men's number one player in the world and about 20 years past his prime, took on, at that time, the top women's player in the world, Billie Jean King. If you put this into today's perspective, it would be like John McEnroe playing against Naomi Osaka in a tennis match. To say it was a mismatch would be an understatement. King dismantled Riggs in straight set 6-4, 6-3, More about that one later on in the program. While Riggs was getting his butt handed to him on the floor of the Astrodome, the NFL season was underway. Heading into the regular season, the question was, how long was the Dolphins' winning streak going to last? Well, it ended on the second week of the 1973 season, as the Oakland Raiders playing at the University of California's Memorial Stadium because of a scheduling mix-up, defeated the Miami Dolphins 12-7 on September the 23rd. With the winning streak over, there there needed to be something in the NFL to pay attention to. In 1973, it would be running back from Buffalo named O.J. Simpson. He started the 73 season with a bang, rushing for an NFL record 250 yards in the season opener against the New England Patriots at Foxborough. The season evolved, as the season evolved, the yards kept piling up. By, seasons, by the season's end, Simpson had two records within reach. Jim Brown's all-time single-season record at 1,863 yards and, of course, the 2,000-yard milestone. And he was shattered them both in the snow against division rival New York at Shea Stadium. Simpson would finish the 1973 season with 2,003 yards and the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award. That season, Vikings running back Chuck Foreman was the league's Offensive Rookie of the Year, while Chicago Bears linebacker Wally Chambers would be the Defensive Rookie of the Year. The Dolphins would continue their dominance as they would eventually defeat Minnesota in the Super Bowl in Houston in January. To wind down the year in sports was college football. See, we made a complete circle. The USC Trojans was the preseason number one, yet by its end, their rival, Notre Dame, would be the, on the, in the top spot, winning the national championship. Penn State running back John Capaletti became the first Nittany Lion player to win the Heisman Trophy, 
And to cap off the sports year, Capaletti gave a tearful acceptance speech dedicating this season to his brother Joey, who was stricken with leukemia. The 1973 sports year was truly remarkable with figures like Muhammad Ali to George Foreman to Bill Walton and Billie Jean King. And they continue to be legends some 50 years down the line. And that will do it for this episode's main event as we chronicle the 1973 year in sports. And coming up next will be the Home Field Apparel Top 5 moments from the sports year of 1973. Which if you are old enough to remember, we will surely bring back some memories. Stay tuned. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice! In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at historicallysp 2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now, it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our weekly Top 5, where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries and are being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. Now, college basketball season is in full swing and heading into the conference and NCAA tournaments. And the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles and of your, for your favorite team, which is what I call old school logos, not to mention to make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every single day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off of your next purchase. So give Home Field Apparel a try as you watch your team in the tournament and possibly pull off that major upset. That's Home Field Apparel where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful, Premium apparel, a must-have for the for the tournament. And once again, it's home field apparel where they're fond of saying, wear one for the team. Now, in this special edition of the Historically Speaking Sports 
top five, we will highlight the five most memorable moments of 1973. This is the 50th anniversary of 1973, and to coincide with my 50th birthday, we're going to count down the five biggest, most memorable moments from that calendar year in sports. And so without further delay, here we go. Number five. is an exclusive presentation of ABC Sports. Live from the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, the tennis battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs. What a scene it is, the Houston Astrodome, where up till now they've played almost every sport in the world except tennis. And tonight it's tennis, not Wimbledon variety, not Forest Hills variety, but in this panoramic scene, a happening, a wild scene almost reminiscent of college football with the celebrities present, with the big band here, with dancing cheerleaders and all of the rest. That's the way it is for the battle of the sexes, Billy Jean King against Bobby Riggs. And it's hard to believe, but probably more than 30,000 people are in this arena for an all-time record tennis audience anywhere in the world. Hello again, everyone. I'm Howard Cosell. We're delighted to be able to bring you this very, very quaint, unique event. Now, you know it was big back then when Howard Cosell, dressed in a tuxedo no less, was there watch was there broadcasting to a worldwide audience in prime time on ABC Sports. That night, September 20th, 1973, the top women's player, Billie Jean King, who was carried onto the court by on the floor of the Astrodome on the board on board a litter carried by several male bodybuilders, took on the former men's number one player, 55-year-old Bobby Riggs, who was 20 years past his prime. As he walked on the court, he was escorted by several female models wearing a sugar daddy jacket, which actually was a good look. Yet, the good look for Riggs didn't last long. As after Billie Jean struggled in, with nerves in the early part of the first set, she, she settled in and made the former champ run, and it began to take its toll on the 55-year-old. In a word, King dominated Riggs, beat him in straight set 6-4, 6-3, 6-3, and becoming a hero to women all over the world and helped make 1973 a special year in sports. Number four, Bill Walton scores 44 points in college basketball's national title game. On March 26th, the UCLA Bruins looked to continue their dominance in college basketball and by the spring of that year, sports writers had began to start to call the NCAA basketball tournament, somewhat jokingly as, the UCLA Invitational. They had overall won seven straight national titles, and on that March night, the Bruins had led, led by coach John Wooden to claim the school's ninth national title overall. Facing them that night in St. Louis was Memphis State led by future NBA and ABA All-Star Larry Keenan. The basketball fans that were there in St. Louis and was treated to perhaps the greatest offensive performance in college basketball history. The National Player of the Year and the key to the Bruins' attack, the product of Helix High School in San Diego, went 21 of 22 from the field for 44 points as UCLA defeated Memphis State 87 to 66 for their seventh consecutive national championship. Number three, 
George Foreman beats Joe Frazier in Jamaica. It was billed as the Sunshine Showdown. The heavyweight champion Joe Frazier, who had defeated Muhammad Ali just two years earlier, was set to defend his title against the former Olympic gold medalist and top contender at the power-punching George Foreman on January the 22nd. The fight was scheduled for 15 rounds in Kingston, Jamaica, but it was evident from the very beginning that it may not even go that far. Broadcasting for ABC Sports once again, Howard Cosell. We'll find out tonight how much the Ali fight took out of Frazier, if anything. And we'll find out tonight just how good George Foreman is in punching and in taking a punch. I think he hurt Joe Frazier. I think Joe is hurt. Angie Dundee, Ali's trainer right next to me, is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. Cosell's Down Goes Frazier is one of the most memorable and often imitated calls in sports history. Foreman would knock down Frazier a total of three times in the first round. In the second round, it was actually more of the same, as Foreman would knock Frazier down two more times by the middle of the round. Frazier's knees buckled. He is about, he is down. He is down for the fourth time in the fight. George Foreman is doing to Joe Frazier what he did as a 19-year-old to a veteran Russian, a fellow named Iona Shapula in October of 1968 in the Mexico City Arena. A quick left from George. Another. Frazier is down for the fifth time in this fight. Fifth time. Three times in the first round, twice in the second. McCanny checks his, checks his senses, checks Frazier's senses. It's target practice for George Foreman. It is target practice. Frazier is ready to go again. Joe is standing. There he goes. Three times. Three times. The fight is stopped. No, it is not. It is not stopped. Angie Dundee is screaming, stop it. Ferdy Pacheco, Ali's doctor next week. It is over. It is over. It is over in the second round. George Foreman is the heavyweight champion of the world. In one of the most dramatic beatdowns in boxing history, George Foreman wins the heavyweight championship over Joe Frazier. Almost a year later, Foreman would meet up with Muhammad Ali in one of the most famous fights ever known as the Rumble in the Jungle in Kinshasa, Zaire. Number 2. O.J. Simpson gains 2,000 yards in one season. On a snowy day in December 16, 1973, Bills running back O.J. Simpson entered the 1973 regular season finale against the division rival New York Jets at Shea Stadium. The game had little influence on the upcoming postseason as both teams would miss the playoffs, yet there was high drama in that final game of the season. Simpson had not one but two milestones within reach. First, the all-time single-season rushing record, which was 1,863 yards held by Jim Brown, that was within reach. Then the 2,000-yard barrier would be next in his sights. That afternoon, Simpson carried the ball 34 times for the 2000 for 200 yards and one touchdown late in the fourth quarter Simpson surpassed the seemingly unattainable milestone to finish the season with 2003 yards 
His performance was good enough to earn Simpson league's most valuable player for the 1973 season. And the number one moment in sports history that happened in 1973, Secretariat wins the Triple Crown, claiming the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths. For seemingly over a month in the spring of 1973, sports fans and people in general became caught up in the following in the following a story that became a pleasant diversion from the day-to-day reports of the Watergate scandal that would eventually take down a president. That spring, Secretariat, the horse of the year of 1972, was poised to do something that hadn't been done in a quarter century, and that was to win horse racing's triple crown claiming wins in the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, and the Belmont. Two of the three legs had already been won by Secretariat and now leading, heading into the race at Belmont Park in Elmont, New York, Secretariat was the favorite in a five-horse field on June the 9th. The two other horses, twice a prince, Sham, who finished second in the two previous races, Private Smiles, and My Gallant made up the field. Close to 70,000 fans were there in person and another 15 million watched at home on CBS. As the race unfolded, Secretariat, ridden by jockey Ron Turcott, stayed within the pack until the back stretch and then he turned it on. Calling the race for CBS was the legendary horse racing play-by-play man Chick Anderson. They're on the back stretch. It's almost a match race now. Secretariat's on the inside, by ahead. Sham is on the outside. They've opened 10 lengths on Mike Gallant, who is third by ahead, with Twice the Prince fourth. Then it's another eight lengths back to Private Smiles, who is trailing the field. They continue down the backstretch, and that Secretariat now taking the lead. He's got it by about a length and a half. Still Sham, 10 lengths back, Mike Gallant, Twice the Prince. They're moving on the turn now. For the turn at Secretariat, it looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. Make it three, three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretariat holding on to a large lead. Jam is second, and then it's a long way back to Mike Gallon and twice a print. They're on the turn, and Secretariat is blazing along the first three quarters of a mile in 109 and four fifths. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Sham is dropping back. It looks like they'll catch him today as Mike Allen and Vice the Prince are both coming up to him now. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. Secretariat is in a position that seems impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretariat leads his field by 18 lengths. And now Price of Prince has taken second, and Mike Gallant has moved back to third. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. It's going to be Price of Prince second, Mike Gallant third. And Sam, who had it today, got back to fifth. An amazing, unbelievable performance by this miracle horse. And look at Mrs. Sweetie. She's having the time of her life. She and Lucian Lawrence, who own this most magnificent animal, who has today run the most sensational Belmont stake in the history of this race. Secretariat has accomplished the unbelievable task of breaking the mile-and-a-half record by two and three-fifths seconds. That is a record that may stand forever.
That record time of 2 minutes and 24 seconds is still the Belmont State's record some 50 years later and officially Secretariat won by an unbelievable 31 lengths. At the end, many people were in disbelief, especially the old school sports writers. One that comes to mind is the late columnist and sports writer for the New York Herald Tribune, Sports Illustrated, and Newsweek, Pete Axtham, who said, I used to think the Ali Frazier fight in 1971 was the greatest thing I ever saw. This was even greater. On this date, June 9, 1973, sports fans saw something that most would never forget. Not only did they see a horse become an athlete, but they saw something more perfection and that will do it for this edition of the home field apparel top five and coming up next we're going to send a shout out to not only a player not a coach or announcer or even a sports event we're actually going to send a shout out to the date on a calendar and that date march 5th 1973 the date of my birth what happened on that day in the world of sports on this on this particular monday as it turned out not too much that's right after this short break. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports, Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io Hello and welcome back to the program. And to conclude the show, we usually send a shout out to a historical event or historical personal person within the vast world of sports. And but today we're going to do something a little bit different here on the shout out. And today we're going to send a shout out to a very short shout out to March 5th, 1973. And what was going on in the world of sports on that particular day, which was the day of my birth. And before we do that, let's do a little housekeeping, shall we? I was born the first child of Darrell and Geraldine Augusta at 12.20 p.m. on March 5th, 1973 at Iberia General Hospital in New Iberia, Louisiana. My dad, which I have always felt blessed to have because he was always there for me, even today some 50 years later, ironically enough, was not at my birth. In 1973, my dad was in the Navy, and he got a three-day pass to come home to witness the birth of his son, and I guess I couldn't wait until he got home. He had got the news of my arrival at the U.S. Naval Air Station in Norfolk, Virginia. As I stated, I arrived midday on March, on a Monday, which in South Louisiana, and I had just learned this. I was born exactly the day before Mardi Gras, so for most of for all of my Louisiana friends and family that's still there, insert joke here. Now, according to Billboard magazine, Killing Me Softly by Roberta Flack was the top song that week, and the price of gas was only 39 cents a gallon. 
In the sports world, it was a Monday, not too much was going on. And in my research for this segment, I realized the sports night was light to say the least. Not only was there no NBA game scheduled on that night, but also no NHL games either. Although there was a trade in NHL that day, the Philadelphia Flyers traded Jean Potvin and Glenn Irwin to the New York Islanders for Terry Crisp. And there, even though there were no NBA games on the schedule for March 5th, there was pro basketball otherwise. In Salt Lake City, Utah at the Salt Palace, which I've always loved the name of that arena, the Virginia Squires took on the Utah Stars and the Stars defeated the Squires 117 to 110. The Squires came into the game with a 35 and 35 mark pace by a second year player from the University of Massachusetts named Julius Irving. Maybe you've heard of him. Joining Irving were a pair of rookies. From Old Dominion was point guard Dave Twarzik, who would go on to win an NBA title with the Portland Trailblazers in 1977 over Irving and the Sixers as he teamed up with Bill Walton. Another rookie that contributed to the Squires was a skinny young scoring machine from Eastern Michigan named George Gervin. Irving led Oscar uh, led all scores with 36 points and 14 rebounds while Gervin had 16 and Twarzik had 7 in losing effort. The Stars who was faced the Pacers in the ABA Western Finals that year was led by John Beasley's 22 points while Ron Boone chipped in with 17. It was a night for the other leagues. While the ABA was holding court in Salt Lake City, the other hockey league, the World Hockey Association, had a regular season game on tap on the day of my birth. At world-famous Madison Square Garden, the New York Raiders and the Chicago Cougars played to a 4-4 tie in front of only 3,500 fans. After trading 4-0 the Cougars for most of the game, the Raiders scored four goals in the third period, including two goals within 13 seconds of each other after New York pulled his goalie to gain an extra player on the ice. Both teams trudged into, over into the overtime period, and as explained by the New York Times was the following day, tired and spent and running on pure adrenaline. Neither team scored in overtime, as the Cougars and Raiders played to a 4-4 tie when the game ended in after overtime. Two games on a light night in sports day that a huge sports enthusiast was born. Me. I guess that was sort of fitting. I guess. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And thank you for listening. And as we as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get new wherever and whenever you get new episodes, they're released. So check us out on Twitter at historically sp2 where you get your daily dose of sports history you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com and if you haven't subscribed already please do and also tell your family tell your neighbor tell a friend even tell a passerby on the street about us i would really appreciate it and until next time i'm dana augusta saying so long Hey there, sports history fan. 
This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.